Welcome to episode 9 of the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson. This week we have an interview with Chip Bouvet. He's come back to talk about his game, Universal Rule. Um, before that, let's get to the news. So, Groves by Stephen Armini and Dan Lettering, both of whom have been on the podcast before, will be coming to Kickstarter next Tuesday on June 6th. So go check that out. We'll actually have them both on again to talk about Groves in a future episode. For contests, the Korea Board Games 2017 Design Contest is up on BoardGameGeek. Submissions are due for that by June 30th, so you can check that out. The GameCrafter has several contests going on right now. The Gamehole Dungeon Crawler Challenge is due August 15th. The Manhattan Project Dice Challenge is due September 12th. And the Hidden Movement Challenge is due October 13th. And uh, also the Manhattan Project Dice Challenge is also being run on the Minion Games website as a separate contest, so you can enter both. You can find links to all of these news items on the webpage at theboardgameworkshop.com. If you have any news or contests to share, send them to theboardgameworkshop at gmail.com. Now, on to the interview. I'm here with Chip Bouvet, designer of Universal Rule, amongst several other games you're familiar with. Uh, Chip was actually on episode three, so if you want to go back and listen to that for his introduction. But uh, welcome back to the show, Chip. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be back. So we talked a little bit before we started recording here, and you're my first returning guest, so we're going to talk a little about designing sequel games. So... You've designed Universal Rule, which just recently shipped to Kickstarter backers, and I believe is available on Buttonshy's website, right? Yes, that's correct. But you've also designed Universal Rule 2, which we'll get into later. Yes. So um, so Universal Rule is a 4X game, uh, and the, the classic example, or the most common example of 4X games is uh, Eclipse, um, although there are plenty of other ones, uh, Civilization, uh, Masters of Orion on the computer is an example of a 4X game. And the 4Xs stand for Explore, Expand, Exploit, and Exterminate. Um, and those are, the, <clears throat> those are sort of the goals that the player has. Um, so at the beginning of the, um, towards the beginning of the game, Players are exploring and figuring out what the universe looks like, what planets are in the universe. Um, and then during the expanding phase, you're expanding your sphere of influence and uh, taking over some of those planets. Um, during the exploit phase, you're getting resources out of those planets. Uh, and then finally, in, in the exterminate phase, you're attacking other players to sort of establish uh, your dominance, um, and that's uh, one of the one of the ways to win in Universal Rule. So I think that's a sort of a quick summary of what the game attempts to capture. So what gave you the idea for Universal Rule? So the um, it started with, after the publication of Smoke and Mirrors uh, with Button Shy, uh, I went back to Jason Tagmeyer and said, well, I have a couple other ideas of, um, you know, other light games uh, and social deduction games that would fit into the wallet format. 
um, of only using 18 cards. And uh, we talked about it for a little bit, and he said that he was really more interested in trying to get something um, a little heavier, so a little, uh, a little meatier. Um, and he threw out the example of, for example, a 4X game. And my initial thought was, well, you can't do that. You can't do, you know, a 4X game is, you know, it has an early game, a mid game, a late game, it has multiple paths to victory. Um, there's really a lot there. And trying to squeeze it all into 18 cards, uh, I, I didn't actually initially think it was possible. Um, one of the things that I do each year in January is I do um, I participate in what's called the 4P program. Uh, this is something that Gil Hova um, invented a number of years ago, or started a number of years ago, uh, in response to things like, um, you know, a challenge of write a novel or write a screenplay over the course of a month or, you know, write a blog post every day for a month. You know, one of these challenges that's uh, time limited to one month when you're trying to create something, um, you know, trying to create something new during that period. And there was one for board games, um, but the, the emphasis of the program was, was sort of like, you know, step one, create the rules. Step two, have all the components. Step three, make it look pretty. And step four is you're done. Um, and there wasn't really any play testing involved in that process. So the idea was you would refine this thing over the course of a month. Um, but if you're not testing it, you don't really know if you have a game or not. Um, so Gil's approach to if you're going to spend a month creating something new, uh, and specifically creating a new game, the focus needs to be on how many times did you play test this with people, and how many times did you iterate on the design, incorporating people's feedback. Um, so he created a, he set aside the month of January as the 4P program, um, and the 4P stands for four play tests. Um, so at the time that Jason and I were discussing whether or not a 4X game in 18 cards is a reasonable thing to be able to design, um, we were coming up on January. Uh, so I decided to take that as the challenge. And I figured by the end of January, I would either have a very concrete reason why it was not possible to design a 4X game using only 18 cards, or um, you know, I would have something that I could pitch to Jason and then see if he would be interested in publishing it. And that's, that's sort of where we started. So you started with the idea of building a 4X game out of 18 cards, which is crazy. <laughs> and so by the end of January with the 4P, you obviously had something worth working on. So how far did you get in that first month? Yeah, so that's that's really interesting. Um, I've actually written about this on Gilhova's website. So I will send you the um, I'll send you a link to that. Um, at, yeah, you know, you can put it into the show notes. Um, but 
I, I did end up playing um, a prototype of Universal Rule four times during that month. And I think the biggest thing was I needed to get past the restriction of only having 18 cards. And the way I initially cheated around this was I decided that I would use the backs of the cards as well as the faces of the cards. So each card had a planet on it. So you could play the card as that planet and that would have a certain effect on the game. Um, but when you play the card from your hand, you could play it either side. Um, so every card had at least two different planets um, that you could use it for. And by the, I think by the end of the month, I, um, I had sort of come up with the idea, and actually I think this was Jason's suggestion, of merging both the back and the, the face and the back of the card onto the same card, just rotated 180 degrees. And that sort of felt more like an upgrade. So you had the same physical planet uh, that was shown in the center of the, of, the, um, of the card, but it sort of had two states now. It had a basic state that you could play cheap and early on in the game. And then it had an advanced state that you could sort of build up to. Um, and that really gives you the feeling of not only expanding your universe, um, but also having more things that the card can do. Um, so it's really, it's not really an 18 card game. It's really, you know, almost a 36 card game. Um, and that starts to sound a little bit more reasonable. A little bit more. But um, yeah, and the, the layout of the cards, it works really nice because you do have like the main center of the card is art of the planet which is lovely art by your wife. Oh, yes. And, thank you. I will tell you that you said so. But since a planet is round and has really no defined top or bottom when we're not talking about Earth that everyone assumes north is up. but So it works well when you flip it and you get that upgrade, like you said. But um, So still, you only had 36 different planets to work with. You don't have miniatures. You don't have cards other cards besides the planets so i mean when you're comparing it to a 4x game like eclipse which is a massive box of cubes and miniatures and all sorts of chits and cards how how did you get the feel of a 4x game just using cards so one of the things that's um one of the things that's interesting is the idea that the because cards, because there's such a limited range of cards, every effect in the game needs to be turned up as high as it will go. So, um, you know, I don't really have, I don't really have room for the cards to be subtle. Um, they really need to, you know, you need to look at a card and be like, wow, that's amazing. Um, you know, and, and then, um, you know, some of them will make you work a little bit harder to get them into play and to get that effect. Um, but I really felt like I had a license to make the cards, make every single card overpowered. 
and then you know in relation to each other it'll all work out so that's it's really sort of condensing the it's not just condensing the components of the game but it's also condensing the time span that the game is played over um, so you start off you start off with nothing you start off without any planets um, and then you build your first uh, two or three planets and then now you've got an economy that you could start building up and planning um, you know planning how you're going to uh, actually win the game um, and what your path to victory is going to look like because one of the things about the cards is that uh, each planet has as we mentioned a basic and an upgraded side but only one of those two sides is considered in play and active during the game. Um, so if you have a really good basic card that gives you a good ability, um, you're not going to want to upgrade it right away because you don't want to lose that ability, if that makes sense. So in addition to the planet abilities, there's also different things you did for combat and the... Um... The fleet number, which was an addition after the first time I played it. So how would you factor in the, the use of the fleet and the combat system, which there's there's a lot going on in combat in this game, which is really impressive too. Yeah, combat is really interesting. Um, one of the things in designing the game, one of the things that came um, really quickly and sort of remained the same for most of the development of the game are the actions that players choose to do. So they almost explicitly come from the verbs from the four X's. Um, so you can explore on your turn, you can, um, you can expand your empire by colonizing a planet, you can upgrade one of your planets. Upgrade isn't one of the X's, but it's kind of like, it's very similar to expanding. Um, and then exploiting, you can then get credits from your planets uh, to then uh, use to um, pay for all these other things that you're doing. So the first four actions came together very quickly, and the attack action uh, was, um, you know, actually, I don't even remember what it was like at the end of January. Uh, but it developed a lot during the rest of the year. Um, so attacking was one of the things that we had a lot of trouble with, and it was it was very um, you know it's very important that the rest of the game sort of leads up to this climatic battle where all the players are battling for control and for victory. Um, and you have certain resources that you could bring to bear, uh, in particular, um, the money that you have, the credits that you have. Um, you can use them to influence the battle. And one of the problems with this is, one of the problems that we found early on is that the, um, because everyone's money was public information, you could, you could kind of calculate how a battle was going to go. So you don't know necessarily who's going to support you, 
but you could say, all right, if I'm attacking, if I'm attacking this person and the third person who's, um, you know, the, the other opponent uh, only has two coins that he can use in this battle, then I know before I even go into this battle that I've got enough money that I just push all my chips in and there's no, there's no question about what the outcome of this battle is going to be. And it's good that we reward players who build up their, their economy this way, um, but the problem with it is that there's no, um, it becomes very mathy and you just, you, you need to spend all of your time figuring out what the outcome is going to be and there, there really isn't any, um, any doubt or um, uncertainty. Um, so that kind of fell flat. So it was, uh, it was actually Jason Tagmeier's idea to allow players to use cards in their hand um, and then by discarding them, and this is where the concept of uh, fleet comes in, you could discard a card from your hand and use its military value um, in the battle that you're fighting. And that really, um, that added the layer of uncertainty that we needed, because even if you could tell your opponent was holding two cards, you don't know if they have a fleet value of one or a fleet value of five. Um, and that, um, that reintroduces the uncertainty that the battle phase was missing. Yeah, and that's to talk about it. I mean, since we've been comparing this to Eclipse, I would say the combat in Universal Rule is actually a lot more complex and interesting than combat in Eclipse. In Eclipse, you build up your ships, and it's very obvious you're building up your ships, but then it comes down to just a bunch of dice rolls, where in Universal Rule, it's it reminds me more of Cosmic Encounter, because mm -hmm. other players can pitch into either side, and it becomes a little more political in that way, which is really interesting, and it brings a lot of nuance to it but it's also it's not random it's just hidden deterministic so yes yeah there's there's no random elements to it but it is um it's unclear what the outcome is going to be until uh until you actually reveal it one of the things that you mentioned is um is sort of the the politics of convincing other players to support you and not knowing until the end of the battle if they're going to support you or if they're going to turn on you. Um, so one of the elements of the game is the, is the offensive edge card. And this represents um, the player who has the, um, the greatest military strength in, uh, in the universe. And this card is worth six victory points. And depending on the number of players, uh, you may need between 11 and 15 victory points to win. Uh, so having this card is really a solid chunk. Um, in a five-player game, it's almost half of the victory, uh, victory points that you need to win. So um, the way the card is distributed after an attack is it even if the attack is successful, it does not necessarily go to the attacking player, the active player, but it goes to the player who supported the attacker 
and contributed the most to the battle. So, for example, I could I could pick a fight with, um, you know, with one of my opponents, but if another opponent steps in and brings even more forces to bear um, between his fleet and uh, and the number of credits that he spends on the battle, then that other player will be recognized as the strongest military player at the table, and they'll get the victory points that are associated with it. Um, so it becomes it becomes very interesting when players try to anticipate what their opponents are going to do and then make sure that they use the right um, the right set of resources for the battle to go their way. It does keep it interesting. All right, so Universal Rule is a very impressive thing. So what made you make Universal Rule 2? Was it Jason's idea? Was it your idea? Did you just have so much left over from the first one that it was easy to wrap it up into another game? So uh, so Universal Rule 2 is, um, is really under... Um, I wouldn't even say under development at this point. It's really under design at this point. Um, but during the during the Kickstarter campaign for Universal Rule, uh, we sort of reached some threshold uh, where Jason came to me and said, "You know, yeah, we it's we should definitely start working on a sequel to this." Um, and the idea that we had talked about before was that there are there's still a lot of design space to be explored. And the idea was that we could create a standalone expansion um, that has the same rule set as Universal Rule, but has different planet abilities. And the idea was that it would be playable on its own. So you wouldn't have to have Universal Rule to be able to pick up the, um, the sequel and play with it. But if you had both of them, then you could create your own mix of 17 cards um, or just randomly select 17 cards to play with. And it would give you, um, it would give you more, uh, more planets to play with and, and more of the universe to explore. You know, one of the things about designing a sequel is that you're trying to you have two conflicting goals um, because it's like a sequel to a movie. Everyone that sees the sequel is expecting to see the same things that they enjoyed in the original movie, but they also want to see something different. Um, and what that thing is that's different um, is not going to be the same for every person that views it. So the challenge is um, the sequel to the game has to have a lot of the same elements and evoke a lot of the same feeling as the original, um, but still it needs to bring something new. So that's, that's sort of a, a, a challenge in its own. So you had said with the original that you, you had to make everything turned up to its limit, so it was because you were using so few components. Um, with expansions, in some cases, people add more complexity. They make it a bigger game to give more to the players that already have it. So did you run into any problems with 
not having a place to go because you had already put every <laughs> part of the game up so high? Um, you know, it's interesting because one of the things that, um, you know, if you talk about like collectible card games or living card games or um, anything that sort of comes out in a series, um, there's this concept of power creep. So the idea is that, you know, in order to make these cards appealing to people that have the old cards, well, we could just make these cards even more powerful. So to a certain extent, I don't worry about falling into that trap because I made the first set of cards, you know, as powerful as I could um, to make them interesting. So it's more coming up with new and interesting mechanics to play with. Um, so there's a, there's a couple of things that we're exploring, and I'm not sure which of these is going to um, end up in the final product. But one of the things is, um, is looking at the assumptions and expectations that, are, that have developed around the game as it is. Uh, so for example, in Universal Rule, all of the basic planets are always worth one victory point. So in some of the some of the cards that we're looking at, possibly including in the sequel, um, that's no longer true. So there are some basic planets that are now worth two victory points instead. Um, so as part of the brainstorming around uh, what does a sequel look like, um, part of it is there's sort of an observation step of let me let me look at what people expect and then let me see if I can break some of those expectations and see if something interesting comes out of it. Um, so another was that all of the stats that we have in the cards, all the numbers that we have in the cards are positive. And uh, what would negative numbers look like? Um, and, you know, and how would that work? Um, some of these things, actually, some of the ideas came from a misunderstanding of how the original cards work. So, for example, there are some things that trigger uh, whenever you explore. Now, if another player is exploring on their turn, you can follow them. And that actually triggers anything that says when you explore. It doesn't matter whether you're the active player or not. Um, but that's an interesting um, distinction that we can now make in the sequel. So some of the things care about whether you're the active player or not. Um, so that's a wrinkle that we were able to sort of put in um, after players get sort of familiar and comfortable with the concept of um, having an active player and then following and uh, and how that actually works out in gameplay. This is a much larger game than your typical micro game, both like in time, in the feeling of the game. What has been the reception by the public of Universal Rule if it's presented as a wallet game? And for the most part, those are quicker, shorter games. And this is, what, about a 45-minute playtime for a game with four people? Uh, yes. Yeah, about 45 minutes um, and uh, anywhere in the three to five player range. Um, 
So it's interesting. During the Kickstarter campaign, one of the reviews that we got, um, the reviewer didn't really like the fact that that there was so much complexity in a card game. So he he sort of thought that um, I don't, I don't want to say it didn't live up to his expectations. It didn't live down to his expectations, you know? Yeah. So, um, so he was like, well, when I, you know, if I get a, if I get a card game, I'm only expecting, you know, I'm only expected to have to spend this much time with it. And I'm only expecting to have to sort of put this much thought into it. And, um, you know, and, and Universal Rule is is much more of a game than than you would expect from its uh, component parts. Um, however, most of the people that go in expecting a 4x experience um, are have been really impressed with um, with the results. So it's it's been. Um, I, it's been getting a lot of really good feedback on Board Game Geek, for example, and that's interesting because Board Game Geek is a, um, you know, it's a subset of the of all of the gamers that are out there, but it's a subset that are interested in um, in heavier strategy games and in talking about like, oh, this planet or this strategy or this tactic is you know is better than this other tactic um and so those are those are the conversations that uh that i love to hear players um you know to hear players get involved in awesome well that does it for time today so do you have anything you want to promote anything you have upcoming besides universal rule 2 which is still a ways off uh no universal rule 2 is really the the main thing that i'm working on now um, I've got a, um, I've got a couple other projects that I'm working on. Uh, Chroma Cubes uh, should be coming to Kickstarter uh, later this year through Grail Games, um, and I have a few other projects that I am tinkering with. But uh, Universal Rule is definitely taking up the majority of my time at this point. Cool. And any contact info for our audience? Certainly. Um, the best way to contact me is uh, through Twitter. So my Twitter account is the flying sheep. So that's T H E, uh, the underscore symbol, and then F L Y I N G S H E E P. Uh, and I'm on Twitter quite a bit, and I love talking about games, game design, and anything related to um, this hobby. Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on the show, and we will talk to you again soon, I'm sure. Great. Thanks again, Chris. That does it for this episode. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can find it on Twitter at the BG Workshop, on Facebook.com slash TheBoardGameWorkshop, and email TheBoardGameWorkshop at gmail.com. Show notes are on TheBoardGameWorkshop.com. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.